Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Welcome to UCI Law Talks. I'm Jonathan Glader. Today, we're talking about election law with UCI's resident expert on the subject, Rick Hassan. He is Chancellor Professor, Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science, author of The Voting Wars, From Florida 2000 to the Next Election Meltdown, host of the new election law podcast, the ELB podcast, available on iTunes and SoundCloud. He's also, also author of the forthcoming book, which I want to ask you about in a moment, Plutocrats United, Campaign Money, the Supreme Court, and the Distortion of American Elections. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Why is there so much activity in the realm of election law? It seems as though every day there is a decision from a court of appeals or or a new law being passed to restrict the franchise. What's happening? Well, since uh, the year 2000, when we had the disputed election for president that came down to Florida, the amount of election litigation in the United States has more than doubled. I've been keeping track of this. There used to be fewer than 100 cases per year nationally involving various election issues. It's now around 240 cases a year. So it's not just your imagination. There's a lot more foment. Uh, You have more states passing election laws, often on party lines, uh, to try to give one party or the other some partisan advantage. And you have litigation over those changes in the rules. Some of those cases have made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Many of them get resolved in the lower courts. Uh, But so there's there's been an uptick in the amount of both legislation and litigation. Is it that someone just realized this is a battleground that's worth contesting? Or what, what prompted this? It, it has always been possible, I assume, to fight these, these battles. Sure. Uh, but I'd say uh, I have a uh, chapter in my uh, 2012 book, The Voting Wars, called uh, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Florida. And the lesson that people learned from Florida, or the lesson that political operatives learned, was that in a very close election, the rules of the game matter. And so trying to make uh, what might seem to be even minor changes in a razor-thin election could make a difference. And I think that's motivated people. I also think there's been a lot of rhetoric on both sides about voter fraud and voter suppression. It's ginned up the base. It's become a campaign issue. So uh, recently, Scott Walker, speaking at the Iowa State Fair, one of the things he touted was uh, his passage of a voter ID law. So that's kind of red meat for Republican voters. And so uh, it has a political element to it as well. I want to ask you about the forthcoming Supreme Court case, and then then I'm going to ask you to to back up and situate that in that larger context that that you just alluded to. Uh, So Evanwell, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, can you tell us a little bit about the facts of that case? Sure. This is a case the Supreme Court is going to hear this term. It's a case that uh, comes out of the state of Texas. And it's a question about the drawing of districts. Now, most redistricting disputes involve where the lines are drawn, Uh, whether to include or exclude Democrats, Republicans, or uh, put this group or that group within uh, protect incumbents. Uh, This case involves a somewhat different question, which is, what's the denominator that you use when you divide districts? So since the 1960s, the Supreme Court has said that districts have to be of roughly equal size. And the question presented in Evanwell is, What is the denominator? Are we looking at the total number of voters in the district, or are we looking at the total number of people, population equality or voter equality? And if we look at voter equality, we talk about eligible voters, actual voters, those kinds of questions. Since the 1960s, the court has not clarified what it's meant by the one-person, one-vote rule, 
Although in a 1966 case called Burns versus Richardson, the Supreme Court said that although most states use total population as their denominator, Hawaii could potentially use registered voters and that this was a choice that was generally left up to the states. That's where things seem to be left. There were many challenges that have been filed since the 1960s to try to argue for a total voter rule. Uh, the Supreme Court has turned back those challenges, but it accepted this one for reasons we can talk about, that why I think this case is, uh, comes up procedurally a little bit differently. Uh, the court has taken this case, and the claim in this case is that um, voters who live in certain districts in Texas are having their votes diluted because if you look at comparing just the number of voters in various districts, in districts where there are large numbers of non-citizens, and here in Texas we're talking about primarily Latino voters, but as we could also be talking about children or uh, uh, ex-felons who are no longer uh, uh, able to cast uh, the vote, uh, that their votes are being diluted because they're in districts where each voter's vote counts less than in districts where there, is, there are, are, are fewer non-eligible people voting. And so the question is, does it violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution to draw lines based on population equality as your denominator rather than on the basis of voter uh, equality? And, and uh, that's, that's a, a slight oversimplification because there's also a claim that you can draw lines to promote or to equalize both voter equality and population equality, although that's not certain to me that that's empirically uh, true. So the Supreme Court has managed to avoid addressing this issue to date. You alluded to the fact that this time uh, they've been forced, perhaps, to ex to accept the case because of the procedure that was used. Can you can you elaborate a little bit? Sure. On how we get here? I wouldn't say forced. That's probably a bit of an exaggeration. But I would say that uh, to understand a bit about Supreme Court procedure, most cases come up to the Supreme Court on a cert petition, a petition for writ of certiorari. This is something where the Supreme Court's decision to, to not take a case has no precedential value. So no lawyer can point to the fact that cert was denied and say, aha, that means the Supreme Court agreed with what the lower court did. Most of the cases that come to the Supreme Court come on this cert petition. And the earlier cases raising this one person, one vote question, including one that came just a few years ago by the, the same institutional plaintiff, the uh, Project on Fair Representation, and Ed Blum, the guy behind this Evanwell case, came on a cert petition, Supreme Court denied cert. There's a certain subset of cases, a very small subset of cases involving um, uh, mostly election issues, voting, certain Voting Rights Act cases, certain redistricting cases, and certain campaign finance cases that come up from a three-judge court, three-judge federal district court with direct appeal to the Supreme Court. And when the Supreme Court declines to hear one of those cases, it is a precedent that the lower court got the uh, uh, result, if not the reasoning, correct. And so the fact that this is coming up on mandatory appellate jurisdiction, we know from the Supreme Court, it makes the justices more apt to hear these cases because they know that they're, uh, they are precedential even when they don't decide. And in fact, of the 29 cases uh, in the election law area that the Roberts Court has decided uh, from 2006 to the present, 14 of the 29 came up on this mandatory appellate jurisdiction. Can we read tea leaves there then or make predictions about what the court is likely to do given that they decided uh, not to give 
precedential weight to the decision of the lower court? Well, I think it means that at least four of the justices think there's a serious question here that at least deserves uh, a look. You can't always draw a conclusion as to what's going to happen. A good example of this is the Obamacare case that the Supreme Court heard last term, King versus Burwell. It took four votes to hear that case, yet the final decision was six to three to reject the claim. It's kind of surprising that the court took the case. At the time the court took the case, there was not a split among the circuits, which is a usual reason to take one of these cases. Did Justice uh, Kennedy or Chief Justice Roberts agree that the issue was important enough to vote to hear the case, but then voted to ultimately affirm? That seems to be what must have happened. We don't know because these deliberations are secret. Uh, So I don't think we could read too much into it other than that we know Justice Alito, Chief Justice Roberts, they've said publicly when a case comes up on mandatory appellate jurisdiction, they feel more of an obligation to hear that case and to take it seriously and to give it a full uh, airing. Let's talk about the plaintiffs for just a moment, because you alluded to to who they are. These are these are not novice litigators here or litigants here. Who's who's brought this? So there's a guy named Ed Blum uh, who runs the Project on Fair Representation, and uh, his uh, big issue is the issue of race and color blindness. So he is the same person. The Project on on uh, uh, Fair Representation is essentially Ed Blum's ideas with some donors who back his ideas, and some very good lawyers. And he puts the two together. And uh, he is the person who is backing the Fisher versus University of Texas anti-affirmative action litigation. He is also the person who was behind the two challenges to the constitutionality of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, the part of the Voting Rights Act that required uh, jurisdictions with a history of race discrimination in voting to get approval before they make changes in their voting rules. that was the Shelby County case, and before that, the Namudno case. So this is another in the series of cases he has brought. And if you ask, what's the common thread in these cases? Well, it's easy to see the common thread between Fisher and Shelby County, which is uh, race-based distinctions. Well, there's a race issue here, too, or uh, at least an ethnicity issue here, which is that uh, in Texas, at least, when you talk about total population and you talk about the difference between population equality and voter equality, you're talking about a large number of non-citizen Latinos. And so the claim is, in essence, this is uh, giving too much power to Latinos in terms of representation. So I think that's the common thread. What I expect would happen if this challenge is successful is that it would shift power from urban areas and democratic areas where you're much more likely to have large Latino non-citizen populations and populations of children who are also ineligible to vote to Republican uh, districts uh, and to rural districts. Uh, rural districts tending to be Republican. So there's a partisan aspect to this, and there's kind of a uh, race neutrality issue to this. So that's where I think these things have uh, some commonality. Can you tell us a little bit about the argument to be made? It's not as though this is dealt with in the Constitution explicitly. So what are, what are the plaintiffs arguing? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the text of the Constitution, which we Law professors often neglect, uh, as uh, we're sometimes reminded by justices like Justice Scalia. When it comes to apportioning representation in the Congress among the states, there are 435 members of Congress, how do we decide how, how many representatives for each state? The Constitution specifically says in the 14th Amendment that it's done by a count of all the people. Right, so we count all the people for purposes of apportionment. But you're right, it doesn't say anything because there's no one-person-one-vote rule explicitly in the Constitution for uh, state uh, elections. It comes from the Equal Protection Clause. 
from uh, for federal elections, the Supreme Court found in Article uh, One of the Constitution. Uh, and so uh, there are arguments, there are principled arguments to be made for both an equal voter rule and a total population rule. But I think there are really two questions embedded in that. One question is, is equal uh, voters or total population, equal population, a better standard normatively? But the other question is, who should decide that? And what the Supreme Court said in the 1960s was, this is a question we're going to leave to the states. This is something we don't have to decide which one. Both are principled choices and let the political process decide. And Texas has decided to continue to use total population. Uh, and so it's kind of odd that you have a group of conservatives uh, who are backing not only overturning the precedent of Burns versus Richardson, but also kind of an anti-federalist uh, argument where they're saying that states should not have discretion to decide this, that everyone should have to stick with the same uh, total voter rule for the division of these things. I think on the merits, there are arguments made on both sides as to uh, which is a better measure of equality, but I really think this should be left to the states. I was going to ask, in a blog post, you wrote that this is, is not really a conservative argument. Is this just partisanship being waged in, through the courts? or is Well, I think it's either partisanship, uh, an attempt to give an advantage to the Republican Party in Texas. And I expect, although this involves the state legislature, which is heavily Republican in Texas, I think if successful, this could easily be translated to congressional redistricting, which could have national implications. But it also fits into the ideology of the Project on Fair Representation, which is a kind of colorblindness and a, uh, a, a, a an attempt to prevent what I think Blum believes to be special uh, protections uh, for minorities. Uh, I mean, that's not the way I look at the case, uh, but I think that's how he looks at the case, and I think that is part of what's probably motivating him. Although I suspect that many of the backers of this are, see a uh, partisan advantage uh, should this uh, claim be successful. Does this case relate to uh, battles over spending restrictions, over uh, voter ID, some of the other hot-button topics in election law? Well, I would say that uh, this fits in uh, uh, closest to the struggles over the Voting Rights Act and about representation. And in fact, uh, uh, recently the city of Yakima, Washington, uh, which was involved in some Voting Rights Act uh, uh, litigation, they were sued for not giving enough minority representation on their city council. They filed a brief supporting the plaintiffs in the Evanwell case and making the argument that it's really impossible to um, comply with the total equality uh, principle and have a fair representation system without uh, uh, destroying what they see as their choice in terms of how they want to run their electoral system. And uh, what's at stake is how much representation uh, is there going to be for, in this case, a group of Latino voters. And so I think that this is part of a greater struggle over voting rights, which has both a partisan dimension and a racial dimension. In, uh, in the Evanwell case, it really involves Latinos rather than African-Americans in lots of the other cases, especially the cases in the South. You think of the North Carolina voting rights case or the Texas voting rights case, both of which are working their way through the courts and will probably both end up at the Supreme Court. You're talking much more about African-American uh, populations. But it's really a struggle that's both a, uh, uh, a, a partisan struggle and a, a racial struggle. As we pass the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act and as people are rethinking the relationship between uh, uh, representation and uh, uh, the entire political process. Are there states that have experimented with the kind of regime that the plaintiffs are, are trying to, to get to in Evanwell? 
Well, remember, back in that 1966 case in Burns versus Richardson, Hawaii was trying to use registered voters. But uh, a point that's been made repeatedly by Professor Nate Persley of Stanford Law School, who's been involved in actually drawing district lines as a special master for courts, is that we do not have very good information as to the total number of voters. That is, the U.S. Census, which we have to take every 10 years uh, under the provisions of the Constitution, collects information on people, not on voters. And so uh, personally argues it would actually take a uh, Supreme Court order to the Census uh, Department to actually collect this kind of information. Otherwise, trying to use sampling or trying to use a survey data is likely to be riddled with errors. So if the Supreme Court adopted a uh, voter uh, equality denominator, uh, we're not really equipped to be able to do that in uh, in a very accurate way. And so it would require collecting more data, which is another reason why I think that this doesn't look like a very conservative case, because here you're asking for the federal government to do even more things and to have even more control in this area. So any predictions you're comfortable making about the outcome of this case when it gets to the court? Yes, I predict I'm going to be very interested in the oral arguments. <laughs> and uh, uh, based on what happened in the Arizona redistricting case, which was decided last term, I predict that I'm going to be very uh, wary of making predictions because I listened to Justice Kennedy in that case in the oral argument, and I thought uh, that that uh, provision was going to be struck down. And in fact, the Supreme Court upheld citizen redistricting in Arizona despite a challenge that it violated the elections clause of the Constitution. And so I think uh, we really have to see how these things work out. But it would be quite an earthquake, a political earthquake, for the Supreme Court to change the one-person, one-vote rule. I, I will point out uh, that there are two justices in particular uh, who have some interest in perhaps changing the rule. One is Justice Thomas, who back in 2001 dissented uh, from a Supreme Court cert denial raising the same issue. The other is Justice Alito, who when he was applying for a position at the Reagan Justice Department. So a long time ago, uh, uh, when he was asked about what motivated him to get into politics, one of the things he said was that he was upset with the Warren Court's one-person, one-vote rule. Uh, and so I'd be interested to hear what both of them have to say. Uh, probably we won't be hearing from Justice Thomas at the oral argument, but I'm sure he'll have plenty to say when he writes his uh, opinion. could be a dissenting opinion uh, in the opinion uh, later on uh, in 2016, like most likely. Let me ask you about a safer prediction then. This has to do with your new, the forthcoming book that I said I wanted to ask you about, The Plutocrats United. Is Evanwell in that book? Oh, it's interesting you say that. Evanwell was the very last thing I added to one of the footnotes of that book because I, I uh, the book is about campaign finance, but I do draw an analogy between the one-person, one-vote cases uh, and the uh, uh, equality argument for limiting money in politics. And uh, one of the things I had said in the earlier draft of the book was, well, it's well settled. The one person, one vote rule is really nothing to say about it anymore. It's accepted uh, by everyone on the left and the right. And now, of course, it's potentially up for grabs again in Evanwell. So, so that's made it into the footnotes. That was all that there was space for at that point. But uh, it does make a cameo appearance uh, in that book. And I suspect it'll be something also that you'll be discussing in the, in the podcast forthcoming, no doubt. Yes, uh, we're... Uh, Planning on doing, uh, I think, at least once a month on the ELB podcast, talking to people in the run-up to the 2016 election on the major election law issues that are uh, facing this country. My general wrap-up question in interviews has always been, is there something else I should be asking? So I'll pose that now. Uh, well, I would say the sleeper uh, issue, the one that's, uh, that's coming up uh, potentially to the Supreme Court within the next year, 
maybe even before the 2016 election, is a challenge to what remains of the McCain-Feingold law, which is the soft money provisions. And we talked about that three-judge court, that special appeals rule. There's a new case that's been filed uh, by Republicans in Louisiana, by an uh, ardent campaign finance opponent named Jim Bopp, who's brought, who brought Citizens United and a bunch of other cases. He's trying to get a three-judge court to challenge the McCain-Feingold soft money rules if he does. That case will be on the fast track to the Supreme Court, maybe before the 2016 election. Then we will certainly have to record another one of these sessions, I think. Um, and I, I hope we can have you back to talk about uh, other issues in election law in the future. If topic, uh, if the topic is of interest, you should also tune in to Professor Hassan's ELB podcast, which again is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.